Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, it's that time of year again when the entertainment industry hands out awards for music, motion pictures, live stage, and television. These media help shape the view of cultures, people, places, and things. Uh, in fact, the Oscars, by the time we air this, they um, will have handed out some awards for the movie. So, you know, sometimes movies and television and all of those media, they're really the only lens through which groups like Black African Americans are viewed. You're right, Aunt Carol. Unfortunately, because of systemic racism in those industries, the image of Black African Americans isn't always a very positive one, nor do we get to see a lot of them in juicy starring roles, producing or directing. I guess that's mainly because of who has been calling the shots and holding the money in Hollywood. You're exactly right, my dear niece. The film and TV business is made up of what I call an ecosystem. It's the studios, networks, production and streaming companies and distributors, as well as the on and off screen talent, writers, producers, directors, executives, agents, crew members, and even casting agents. Every part of that ecosystem has some level of a control over who or what makes it to the screen. And Courtney, that ecosystem is overwhelmingly white and male. And Carol, some in the industry say that the Hollywood ecosystem is protected by the First Amendment, you know, the right of free speech. Well, that argument might seem valid. But remember, the definition of systemic racism is any prejudice against someone because of their race when those views are reinforced by systems of power. Now, systems of power, as we know, are patterns, procedures, practices, and policies that operate within social institutions so as to consistently penalize disadvantaged and exploit individuals who are members of non-white ethnic groups. So, Aunt Carol, you're saying that the people who run the movies and television put patterns, procedures, and practices, as well as policies in place to keep Black African Americans from being successful? Well, that's exactly what I'm saying, but don't take my word for it. Several studies, including one I'll talk about later by the McKinsey Group, point out the industry uh, that it's both in the past and in the present as one that has consistently shown inequity towards and exploitation of Black African-Americans as well as other ethnic groups. So overall, the statistics show that both in front and behind the camera, particularly in those decision making roles, the industry, like you said, is overwhelmingly white 
and male. And that's the way it's been for most of the history of Hollywood. So let's talk a little bit about that history. When it comes to roles, most Black African-Americans until the 60s and 70s were almost exclusively relegated to subservient roles, roles like maids, porters, singers, and dancers, but definitely none were cast as leading men or women. And the roles they did get were often stereotypical of how white people thought Black African-Americans are. And it wasn't very flattering for the most part. For example, celebrated singer and pianist Hazel Scott refused to do a musical number in the movie The Heat's On until the studio agreed to change the mammy-style clothing the Black female actors were to wear. And Pearl Bailey objected to all the women wearing mammy-style bandanas in the movie Porgy and Bess. And isn't it true that Hazel Scott had problems getting film roles because of her objections? She certainly did. Uh, She was labeled difficult and was pretty much banned from future work, but she did speak out. Now, even big name stars like Sidney Poitier knew how Hollywood's tendency to stereotype Black African-Americans worked. He's quoted as saying, I was not in control of the kinds of films I would be offered but I was totally in control of the kind of films I would do. So I came to the mix with that power, the power to say, no, I will not do that. Well, when you have that kind of star power like Sidney Poitier, you can say no, but that's not a luxury or an option for most working actors. So true. That's why in the past and even today, Black African-American actors developed pan-ethnic theaters. These are, are, were places to create and perform and be seen in their own terms. One of the earliest of these theaters was in 1926. It was called the Krigwa Players, Little Negro Theater, which W.E.B. Du Bois described as plays of real Negro theater about us and by us. Now, that must have been the predecessor of the Negro Ensemble Company, co-founded in 1967 by Douglas Turner Ward, Robert Hooks, and Gerald Crone. Yep, that ensemble claims as its alumni Angela Bassett, Samuel L. Jackson, Felicia Rashad, Lawrence Fishburne, and Denzel Washington. Now, that's a stellar lineup in anybody's book. Considering talent like theirs has been around for a while, surely there must have been protests about stereotyping and underrepresentation of Black African-Americans in Hollywood. Well, there have been protests, Courtney. One of the first was when the NAACP protested against D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation in 1915. That protest led to five states and 19 cities banning the film for its racist portrayals of Black African-Americans and glorification of Ku Klux Klan. Now, through the years, the organization has repeatedly called for greater representation of Black African-Americans in decision-making, production, and directorial positions as well. Well, it looks like that the NAACP protest against Birth of a Nation, which is an extremely problematic film, was somewhat successful. Yes, it was. But getting the industry to change is a slow and seemingly insurmountable process, especially at the decision-making level. But it's not impossible, since we do have examples of Black African-American producers, directors, showrunners, and so on, who have defied the odds. Now, often when we think of a pioneering Black African motion picture director or producer who crashed that Hollywood barrier, the name Spike Lee comes to mind. Now, his production company, 40 
Acres and a Mule Filmworks has produced more than 35 films since 1983, and he made his directorial debut with She's Gotta Have It in 1986. But Courtney, I think you have a story about someone who was producing and directing films way ahead of Spike Lee. I definitely do, Aunt Carol. Now, according to the website Black Past, Oscar Micheaux was a quintessential self-made man. This novelist, filmmaker, director, and producer was born on a farm near Murfreesboro, Illinois. Now, Michelle was born on January 2nd, 1884, on a farm in Metropolis, Illinois, the fifth child of Calvin S. and Belle Michaud, who had a total of 13 children. Wow, they were prolific. That was a, a large brood. Now, in his later years, Michelle added the E to his last name. His father had been born as an enslaved person in Kentucky with the name without the E. Now, in later years, Michelle wrote about the social oppression he experienced as a young boy. His parents moved to the city so that the children could receive a better education, but they eventually ran into money troubles and they were forced to return to the farm. Now, back on the farm, Michelle became discontented and rebellious, and his attitude caused problems within the family. So at age 17, he moved to Chicago to live with his older brother, who was working as a waiter. Michelle became dissatisfied with what he viewed as his brother's way of living the good life. Being a waiter was not what Oscar had envisioned as his success. So he moved out, rented his own place, and found work in the stockyards. Now, stockyard work proved too hard also. So he soon moved from the stockyards to the steel mills, where he held down many different jobs. Now, in his quest for Good jobs. He went through employment agencies, but after being swindled out of $2 by an employment agency, Michaud decided to become his own boss. His first business was a shoeshine stand, which he set up at a wealthy African-American barbershop. While shoeshining, he learned the basic strategies of business and started to save money. Now, later, he became a Pullman porter. And at that time, that was considered prestigious employment for Black African-Americans because it was relatively stable, paid well, and was a secure job. And it enabled travel and interaction with new people. Now, this job was an informal education for Michelle. Not only did he profit from the salary, he also gained contacts and knowledge about the world through traveling, as well as a greater understanding for business. Now, when he stopped being a Pullman porter, he had seen so much of the United States and had a couple of thousand dollars saved in his bank account he had made also made a number of connections as well with wealthy white people that he would use in his future endeavors. But Michelle was not done traveling. His travels were not over yet. Eventually, he moved to the great state of South Dakota, where he bought land and worked as a homesteader. Uh, 
It was this experience that inspired his first novels and films. While homesteading, Michelle learned more about human relations and farming. He even wrote articles and submitted them to the press about his experiences and the Chicago Defender published one of his earliest articles. Boy, he was pretty uh, prolific, uh, a businessman, a homesteader, a writer. What a man. And he was a renaissance man of his time. Now, Michelle's first three novels, The Conquest, The Forged Note, and The Homesteader, were autobiographical. They describe a young Black man's life in rural white South Dakota. He made money on these books by going door to door and selling them. Now, and these works were sold to neighboring farmers. Encouraged by the modest success of his first novel, Michaud gave up farming to write six other novels about this period and this region. That was pretty uh, courageous to step out there on his talent like that. He seems like the type of guy that's not afraid to try anything. Now, things were going very well for Michaud in South Dakota, so well that he found and married what he thought was the love of his life, Orlean McCracken. But actually, that's when things turned sour. Mm. When Oscar returned home from work one faithful day, he was going to find a big surprise. Oh, boy, this is interesting. Well, Courtney, Oscar Michaud's life has been a whirlwind up to this point. It's almost as if he's lived enough life and had enough jobs for three to four men. I really can't imagine what disaster might be waiting in the wings. So let's take a break. Then we'll hear what he found at home. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Okay, Courtney, we're back. And the last we heard, Oscar Michaud was on his way home. And I think you said he was in for a surprise. He definitely was. Now, before the break, Oscar Michaud was homesteading in South Dakota and had written some novels. Now, eventually he left farming and was successfully selling his writings, but things were not going well in his marriage. Now, we've all heard that old cliche, happy wife, happy life. Well, in Oscar's case, things were just the opposite. Orlean, his wife, was unhappy and she was about to make Oscar's life very unhappy too. Orlean felt Michelle didn't pay enough attention to her. So while he was away on business and after giving birth to their child, she emptied the bank accounts and hit the road. Whoa, took the money and the baby. (laughs) Took the money and ran. And if that wasn't bad enough, Orlean's father sold Michelle's property and took the money from the sale, not leaving one dime to Oscar. And try as he might, Michelle wasn't successful in getting either Orlean or his property back. Boy, talk about uh, bad in-laws. He had 
Yeah, those, those really were outlaws. Big. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sell your property and take your money. Hmm. Okay. Now, these were some heartbreaking setbacks. And things like these would have finished any other man's chances for success, especially a Black African American living at the turn of the century. But this was Oscar Micheaux, and he would not be deterred. His wife and father-in-law could not steal his creativity. So Micheaux turned his attention to filmmaking. Hmm. After so after seeing D.W. Griffin's powerful and racially charged, as well as super problematic anti-Black movie, Birth of a Nation, Michelle realized filmmaking could tell powerful stories, just like the novels he had been writing. Now, as fate would have it in 1918, he was contacted by a Black-owned by the Black-owned Lincoln Film Company in Nebraska to adapt his third novel, The Homesteader, into a film. Well, who would have known a Black film company and, of course, named Lincoln Film Company? Now, surprisingly, Michaud turned down the offer and instead his independent spirit kicked in. He moved back to Chicago where he made his own film version of the novel. The Homesteader was the first full-length feature film written, produced, and directed by a Black African-American. It was also a commercial success. It grossed over $5,000. Wow, back then that was a lot of money. That was MCU kind of money back then. Mm. That's all it took to launch his career. Michelle would go on to produce 44 mostly low-budget films between 1919 and 1948 that appealed to the rapidly growing Black African-American movie-going audiences. And they were moving north during the Great Migration. It was a time of great change in the Black African-American community. And these films featured Black contemporary life. He was also able to persuade the best Black actors in his era to work in his films. So that also appealed to his audience, just like the topics of his movies. Hmm. So he figured it out how to market to the right audience and to have the right topics that would bring them in. Exactly. Now, most of his films were detective stories, quickly written, filmed and edited now edited and released his black african-american audiences rarely complained about the quality since they were starved to see people on the silver screen that looked like them mm. sometimes he tackled more complex subjects in his film for example he wrote within our gates his fifth film as a counterbalance to the racist film birth of a nation Mm. Michelle also took on controversial subjects in the black community, such as interracial romance, skin color, hypocrisy and corrupt clergymen. His films contrasted sharply with the Hollywood image of blacks as lazy, ignorant and sexually aggressive. He dealt with racial relationships between blacks and whites and the challenges for blacks when trying to achieve success in America. He also used film to oppose and discuss racial injustice against black African-Americans. Well, he was way ahead of his times. He definitely was. He took on topics like 
lynching, job discrimination, rape, mob violence, and economic exploitation. They were all depicted in his films. Some of his films were autobiographical and clearly showed his own political leanings and ideas. Now, overall, Michelle tried to make films that would counter white portrayals of Black African Americans, which tended to emphasize inferior stereotypes. He created complex characters of different classes. His films questioned the value system of both African American and white communities. As a result, some of his films were very controversial, controversial enough that they caused outcries in the press and threats of censorship in some states. Wow. Hmm. He was something. He certainly was. Now, much like the black exploitation movies of the 70s, often white movie critics pointed out Michaud's amateur movie making skills, yet his audiences devoured the product, making him the most successful black African-American writer, producer and director in the United States until his death in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1951. Michelle was ahead of his time because he had control of the production and distribution of his films, something unheard of at that time, especially for a black African-American. Now, eventually, Hollywood recognized both his genius and crucial role in opening opportunities for black African-Americans in front of and behind the motion picture camera. In 1987, Oscar Michaud was memorialized with a Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame. Now, two years later, he was given a posthumous award by the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame and the Directors Guild of America. Each year, Gregory, South Dakota, Michaud's adopted hometown stages the Oscar Michaud Film Festival. Well, this is something to really, really um, consider pioneering. Um, but to tell the truth, he, he goes way beyond. He's beyond a pioneer. I remember seeing some of his films in a uh, Black film festival, and I was just taken with the skill of the filmmaking, the script writing, the acting. And even though, yes, at the time the films were criticized, what I saw really um, blew my mind because I didn't expect anything of that nature or that caliber from that time period. So filmmakers like Lee Daniels, Ava DuVernay, Spike Lee, and a host of others owe him a debt of gratitude. Now, Oscar Michaud definitely did make his mark. I was able to see some of his films as well, and they were a sharp contrast from the maids and inferior subservient characters with the goofy takes and just the silliness. They showed Black African-American audiences themselves and in during different roles. But in Carol, what's going on today? It's 2021. So have the ranks of executives, producers, showrunners, you know what we would call the gatekeepers. Are they following in Michelle's uh, footsteps? What's being done to confront systemic racism in Hollywood today? Well, my dear niece, though there has been progress, it has been slow. 
It seems like that's always the case with Americans' institutions when it comes to systemic racism. Now, a March 2021 McKinsey and Company report titled Black Representation in Film and TV, The Challenges and Impact of Increasing Diversity, that's the one I talked about a little bit earlier, it showed that both film and TV still have very little minority representation among top management and boards. That's where the decisions are made, of course. Now, film in particular is less diverse than relatively homogenous sectors such as energy, finance, and transport. So basically, television and film doesn't have as much diversity as other major industries. Less than 6% of the writers, directors, and producers of U.S.-produced films are Black African Americans. That McKinsey report found that unless at least one senior member of production is Black African American, that Black African American talent is largely shut out of critical positions behind the camera. Oh, wow. Now, as everybody knows, I love comic book characters and movies, and both Marvel and DC Studios are striving to bring more characters of color to the screen. But what about those juicy roles for actors? You know, Oscar bait, those award-winning, outstanding uh, performances in movies and TV shows. Well, Courtney, that same McKenzie report found that fewer Black-led stories get told. And when they are, these projects have been consistently underfunded, underpromoted, and undervalued, despite often earning higher relative returns than other properties. That means if a movie or TV show isn't promoted widely, it won't get much attention. And certainly if it doesn't get any attention, it has a less chance of getting awards. Now also emerging black African-American actors receive significantly fewer chances early in their careers to make their mark in leading roles compared to white actors. And they have a lower margin for error. Black talent is pigeonholed and funneled into race-related contact, which often plays into stereotypes. You know, the one where he's the sidekick and he gets killed off early in the movie. Now, as far as getting awards goes, that's pretty hard to do when the majority of people voting for them are white. For example, it was recently revealed that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which votes on the Golden Globes, doesn't have a single black member. Oh, wow. And I remember that hashtag campaign Oscars so white a few years ago. So the McKinsey report does does hold true. Now, Aunt Carol, it seems that the industry will be paying attention to the rapidly changing demographics of America and a and try to appeal to that demographic. For example, according to an article by Annie Myers, Gen Z is more racially diverse, educated, and queer than any of the previous generations. It's a progressive group seeking authentic and diverse casting and storytelling on and off screen. This generation is vocal about wanting to see themselves and their peers reflected back to them up on the big and little screen. Well, what you pointed out makes complete sense. In fact, that same McKinsey report I mentioned said the industry could reap an additional $10 billion in annual revenues by expanding its reach to be more inclusive. So what needs to happen to get that inclusion and, and diversity? I know some companies are trying, but what really needs to be done? Well, the McKinsey study I mentioned suggested the usual steps we keep seeing in studies and reports aimed at increasing diversity. So I'm not going to bother listing them. 
But to paraphrase the great abolitionist and black leader, Frederick Douglass, no one gives up power willingly. So the solution I think that's going to work is for black African-Americans to figure out how to become their own gatekeepers in the TV movie business. Figure out how to become the executives, the producers, the showrunners, and so on, separate and apart from Hollywood. Now, someone who I would say went to the Oscar Micheaux School of Hollywood and figured out how to do that is actor, director, producer, and screenwriter Tyler Perry. Mm -hmm. I agree with you on that. In 2011, Forbes listed him as the highest paid man in entertainment earning $130 million between May 2010 and May 2011. Now, the crown jewel in Tyler's empire is Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, one of the largest film studios in the nation. It established Tyler Perry as the first African-American to outright own a major studio. You're exactly on point with that, Courtney. In 2015, Perry bought a 330-acre former military base, Fort McPherson, located in Atlanta, that he converted to his own studios. The studios were used to film the HBO film version, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it's currently in ongoing use for the television series, The Walking Dead. It's 50,000 square feet of uh, site There is dedicated to standing permanent sets. It includes a replica of a luxury hotel lobby. It even has a White House replica. Uh, there's a 16,000 square foot mansion, a mock cheap hotel, a trailer park set, and a real 1950s style diner that was relocated from a town 100 miles away. It also hosts 12 soundstage named after highly accomplished Black African-Americans in the entertainment industry like Cicely Tyson. Now, I'm happy to say the blockbuster Marvel film Black Panther was the first movie to be filmed on one of the new stages at the studio. Following that, you had Infinity War, Endgame, and the upcoming Spider-Man Far From Home also being filmed at Tyler Perry Studios. Well, Courtney, comic book nerd that you are, I knew you'd know those tidbits of information, and they're really not tidbits. That's a lot of money going on. Now, on June 14, 2017, Perry signed a long-term deal with Viacom, now Viacom CBS, for 90 episodes per year of original drama and comedy series. Now, the TV deal began fall of 2019 with The Oval, Sisters, and BET Plus, a brand new streaming service. Now that's how you do it. Oscar Michelle would be so proud. Make your own space in the industry and don't wait for someone else to give you the green light. Yep, yep. The green light, you control it. Shonda Rhimes has figured it out too. She's a television producer, screenwriter, and author, best known as the showrunner, creator, head writer, and executive producer of the television medical drama Grey's Anatomy. Also, it's spinoff, Private Practice, and the political thriller series Scandal. Now, Rhimes has also served as the executive producer of the ABC television series Off the Map, How to Get Away with Murder, The Catch, and Station. And of course... Bridgerton. Oh, yes. <laughs> In 2007, Rhymes was named one of the of Times. 100 people who help shape the world. And in 2017, Netflix streaming service entered into a multi-year 
development deal with Rhymes, by which all of her future productions will be Netflix original series. Again, Bridgerton. Oh, Bridgerton. I can't wait to go back. Shonda Land is alive and well, bringing entertainment to millions. Yep, she's done it again. Now, another way creatives are breaking free of Hollywood stranglehold on the business is by producing independent films, YouTube videos, and web videos. And Carol, those medias definitely appeal to my generation and Gen Z. That's how actress, writer, and producer Issa Rae first got attention for her work on the YouTube web series, Awkward Black Girl, which was one of my favorites. Ray created Awkward Black Girl because she felt the Hollywood stereotypes of African-American women were limited and she couldn't relate to them and neither could I. That's why I love the series so much. Now, since then, she's expanded her YouTube channel with various short films, web series, and other uh, content created by people of color. So if you watch Insecure on HBO, or even the Black uh, Ladies Sketch Comedy Show on HBO, those have her hands all over them. Yep, she is definitely changing the landscape. And for that, she was included in the annual Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world. What I like about Ray is that she used her platform to bring attention to police violence and brutality against Black African Americans following the police shooting of Alton Sterling in 2016. She raised over $700,000 for the Sterling Family Trust to help pay for the Sterling children to attend college. Now that's using your star power in a positive way. And that's also flouting the old Hollywood machine. That's absolutely right. Well, and Carol, that brings this episode to a close. But if you want to check out any other episodes or find us on social media, please go to the website, www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.